Many individuals try to find success on a daily basis. But what defines this success? Where does it come from? When you find a passion in your life and pursue this passion, everything can come together to form success. This is Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. Our guests will motivate you to take the next step to your success. Now, here's your host, David Wallach. Good morning, you all. Welcome to our weekly episode of Taking Care of Business. My guest this uh, finally, I can say, wonderful morning in Calgary, where on the plus side of the thermometer for a change, has been in the franchise business for many years. Uh, I first got to know him when I had a coffee in what I believe was his first coffee place at, at the time, and we'll find out later. Um, today, he's running three of Tim Horton's restaurants in South Calgary. My guest today is Alan Myers, owner and franchisee of Tim Hortons on McLeod Trail, Southland Drive, and Elbow, and Avenida. Uh, good morning, Alan. Good morning, David. Welcome to Taking Care of Business, and thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. So, Alan, I understand that uh, you were born in New York, and the family, when you were a young kid, moved to Fredericton, New Brunswick. That New is Brunswick, correct. that I don't think many of our listeners can even identify it on the map. So, do you know the family history? Why I moved from the Big Apple, the place that everyone wants to be, everybody dreams of, to Fredericton, New Brunswick. Nothing wrong with Fredericton, but usually people move that way. Um, very simple answer. Um, Fredericton has a history of being very, very good to people that went there to make a living as long as they worked hard. And like so many people before him and at the same time and after him, um, my dad went there to make a living. Um, It was, as I said, it was a very business-friendly community. Um, I grew up there. I'm aware of people that, I know of people that uh, a fellow was a very successful accountant in Montreal, and he was the accountant for a major um, cable vision firm in Fredericton, and he liked the company so much that he bought it, (laughs) and um, he had a monopoly for cable vision in the Fredericton area. So as I said, Fredericton has a very long history of being very good to people that went there to make a living. I see. Do you remember anything from New York? Because at age six, you know, we have some memories, but not much. Um, Not, certainly not much. Um, I remember that it was either in the spring or fall, and why I remember that is because there was a huge thunderstorm and the leaves came off the trees and they plugged all the sewers and the water rose. And I, I certainly remember that. And um, another thing that I remember is kind of a dumb thing. Um, we had a basement that had an exterior entrance. And while you walk down the steps um, at ground level was kind of the entrance. And I put a wooden plank out over the ledge and I kept on pushing acorns off the end of the plank to go into the basement. 
and I forgot Newton's laws of gravity, <laughs> and I went out too far on the plank, and I ended up head first going into the concrete basement. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that explains a lot of things That's that right. <laughs> Maybe. I didn't know about you. <laughs> uh, so growing up in Fredericton, how I was growing up in Fredericton as a young, you know, young adult, young kid? Um, Fredericton was a small town. Um, I think before I left in 78, maybe there was like 60,000 people. And that was kind of looking at all the um, bedroom communities there. Um, small town, you knew a lot of people. And there was a time, it was true, where you could actually leave your doors unlocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it was it was a good place to grow up in, had a lot of friends. Um, you know, you could walk to school, um, did grade school, high school, and my undergraduate in Fredericton. So you went to university in Fredericton. Yeah, and, did, and what did you take? Did, I was at the University of New Brunswick. Uh, studied four years and in their Bachelor of Business Administration program. Mm-hmm. And you graduate with a diploma and graduated. And then what? And um, got a job? It, it was very interesting. Uh, while I was there doing, un- like, I went to school, I thought I was going to be a doctor because that, you know, my mom always wanted to be able to say, my son, the doctor. And <laughs> Um, I knew at the time that I didn't like uh, I didn't like sickness, and I'm not great at the sight of blood. So, kind of uh, got off on the wrong foot. Decided that uh, you know wrote some tests, figured out that I had an aptitude for business, and went in there and completed that degree. And then I went on and I did um, my MBA. So, so you didn't take a break to work? No, it was. You know, you kind of learn kind of some lessons. And I can look back on that, and I guess I kind of agree. I mean, there's a lot of people that today take a year or two off to travel the world and whatnot. And I don't know, either my parents always had a big influence on my life. And they were never big on taking time off to have fun, Um, you know. Christmas holidays, Easter holidays, you know, I remember the first day my mom would see me sitting there watching television and she would say, call your father. There must be something for you to do in one of his businesses. So their concern was you take the year off or however long and then you won't go back to school. And um, anyway, so I got accepted to do my MBA. I went off to grad school at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and completed the two-year MBA program there. So that was the first time you left home? Uh, That was the first time I left home. How was that experience? Well, I I very much enjoyed living at home because I kind of had this unwritten agreement with my dad that I could live at home, pay no room and board, and have a car to drive and a company credit card to fill it up, and I could run around town and eat at any of his restaurants, just (laughs) sign the slip, and I could take my laundry 
to his dry cleaning business and get that done. However, I always had to make myself available to work. So, and I worked five, six days a week in one of his businesses, but if there was problems at another one, there was no such thing as an eight-hour day with my dad. I see. Okay? If there was a problem someplace else, you went there and fixed it. So so let's talk about your dad for a second, because from what I understand, from what I hear now, and that's the first time I hear about it, is the entrepreneurship in the family runs, you know, a generation before you. So what did that do in Fredericton? Okay. Uh, my dad went into small business. And he had a number of them. Probably his most successful business, uh, my dad was in the tavern business. And, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting because back then you're talking in the 60s, 70s, um, alcohol, particularly in a Bible Belt city like Fredericton, uh, you're talking, you know, you go back in history, the loyalists and whatnot. Yeah. Um, alcohol was very tightly controlled. And there was the New Brunswick Liquor Control Commission. And one of the very first things that he had to do was that in order to apply for and be granted a liquor license, he had to give up his American citizenship. Oh. Now, I don't know what difference it makes, whether what citizenship you are. But as I said, it was very, very tightly controlled by the government, and they made up whatever rules they so decided, and that was one of them. And there was the New Brunswick Liquor Control Commission, and the inspectors, they controlled your livelihood. Mm-hmm. And he, when they would come in to inspect, for example, he would, they would say, you know what, there's too many cigarette burns in the carpet. When I come back next month, I'd like to see a brand new carpet. And if you wanted to have a happy relationship with them, um, you got a new carpet. You got a new carpet. Um, it, like today, it's amazing. To, um, the The liquor age has been reduced. It, back then, it was 21. I think now it's 18. Um, also, back then, they were male-only establishments. Yes. And um, oh, the things, we once had a college gal dress up as a guy <laughs> and went there. And don't you think it was like, say, a Friday night or Saturday night that a liquor inspector showed up and he, like, she... She was a great-looking guy, let me tell you. <laughs> and anyway, we were in violation, and, and we suffered the penalties of that. Um, so, you know, it times have changed, as I said. You know, it was a male-only, age 21, very tightly controlled hours, when you could open, when you would close. The price that you could charge uh, was controlled by them. So so the work that you did for uh, in dad's businesses were mostly, you know, schlepping and, yeah, and moving. No, yeah. And, uh, when, when, yeah, like I drove delivery trucks um, in the dry cleaning business. I was the pickup driver going between the depots and going to customers' houses. In the grocery business, I stocked shelves um, and carried out groceries. Um and as I said, probably the job that I enjoyed the most was uh, was being in the in the liquor business because um, 
the tips, the money was was really good. And did you get some liquor to your friends when you were underage? Before, no. Before, you know, <laughs> were younger than 21? You know, um, never got into, like, have no t- taste for alcohol. But it was interesting because our house was always full of it because the breweries, you know, were always dropping off whatever. But no, had no taste for it. And, you know, kind of on a serious note, did see too many instances of what alcohol can cause c- causes in people. Mm-hmm. No, no question about that. But uh, you know, my, as I said, my dad was an entrepreneur. Uh, we progressed from just the alcohol into the food business. Um, kind of as an aside, we were um, we were the first establishment that bring in the wet t-shirt contest from the province of Quebec, <laughs> where absolutely everything went. And what was ironic about it is because we were a college town, well, on the weekends, the college girls, after indulging too much, they decided they wanted to be part of the wet t-shirt I contest. See. You didn't push them. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I see. Um, in hindsight, when you look back, uh, to the days you worked with your dad and he was an entrepreneur and you're an entrepreneur. What have you learned from your dad, working for a dad, following him, being part of, you know, his businesses? I'll tell you what's very interesting. Um, when I went to work, you had to be 19 years old to work in the liquor business. Um, so um, when I was old enough to go in there, um, I first started, I was waiting tables, and as I said, like it was a mindless task. All you had to do was serve tables. It was very lucrative to do it. Then, you know, he would teach me the business, and he would decide to take some time off uh, to go away, summer holidays or whatnot. So he would say, there, you're in charge. It was a tremendous pay cut, believe me, going from... Uh, waiting tables to working in the office and whatnot. Uh, But it was okay. And when he would come back, there would be all these people that I had fired or that had quit. And I said, you know, he'd come back and within a week or two, everybody that had left was all back working again. And I said, I remember I said to him, I said, Dad, how come they listen to you and they don't listen to me? He said, as much as they like, and they do, what they would do for my dad was just unbelievable things. You know, just so that you understand, there was usually always a strike at the brewery because it was unionized. Yeah. And the drivers would not cross the picket lines but the pickets used to go home after midnight and that's when the brewery used to load the trucks and they had to come from St. John the Brunswick where the big breweries were so it was like a two hour drive and they wouldn't call you like they knew my dad's place was open till midnight they wouldn't call until an hour before he closed that the truck was coming and his guys would stay and wait for that truck with him, and then they would unload that truck. Um, and, it, and there's not a worse job than unloading 
kegs of beer yeah. and cases of beer because it's all dead weight. Yeah. And uh, that, to me, you know, that, that was loyalty. But like he said to me, he said, Alan, you want to be their friend. I'm their boss. You cannot go out and eat with them and drink with them and socialize with them and expect to be their boss. And that's kind of one of the lessons that I um, I carried with me today. Mm-hmm. So you went to, you did your MBA. Correct. And out of university in Halifax and you need a job and you need a new chapter in life. So what's next? Just the Maritimes has always been economically challenged. And the recruiters would come on campus and the and, and there was the banks and the insurance companies and the accounting firms and the marketing companies and the three prime interviews were with carnation milk Irving oil and Imperial oil and those jobs started at eighteen thousand dollars a year now remember that's 1978 okay and the Insurance companies, accounting firms, banks were starting you at 8 to 10. And I had a tough time reconciling those numbers because I was doing a mindless job of waiting tables. It was hard work, trust me. You had to work, but you didn't have to think much about what you were doing. And back then, I was clearing $500 a week waiting tables. It was pretty tough to say, okay, I'm going to go and do this. So... I did my MBA with a fellow who was from Calgary, and he just talked about the streets are paved with gold in Calgary. <laughs> and this was the first, one of the first economic booms started in the mid-70s with the energy industry. And I came out here unemployed, not knowing a soul, and I sent out probably 200 resumes and I would say a hundred of them I never heard back from and the other uh, the other hundred I probably got got responses and most of it was um, thanks for your interest but there's nothing at this time however we'll keep your resume on file so in the meantime it was costing me $20 a day room and board. I was living at residence at the University of Calgary. Get up every day, put my suit on, go downtown and job hunt. So eventually what I did, um, I knew retail. I took a job at the Hudson Bay Company downtown here. And when they asked me what my availability was, I said, um, I will work, you know, I want full-time work, and I would prefer to work Saturday and Sunday. And the fellow near fell out of his chair, because who wants to work weekends? So I wanted to work weekends, because you can't job hunt on Saturday and Sunday. Right. Everybody is closed. So I had my days off during the week, at which time I was out job hunting. And so I was at the Bay, moved up fairly quickly, and um, while I was there, came across um, a, a, 
an advertisement to work at Engineered Homes, which was a GenStar housing company. So I was fortunate enough to get the job. They taught me first the housing business in Calgary, then in all of Alberta, then the four western provinces, and then I had the best paper route that there could be. Calgary to San Jose to Newport Beach, San Diego, Tucson, Phoenix, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas. And when it was in the wintertime and it was 40 below in Calgary, you couldn't ask for a better paper route. So to break up the monotony, the next month, I would go back in the reverse order where I had to go. And it was a big corporation. They treated me very, very well. Um, I was married, but no kids at the time. And when I would come back after being away and they said I had to go back out again, they would say, well, why don't you take your wife with you <laughs> as well? So, you know, we, uh, it, it, it was a very good job. And I started there like, um, I think maybe, let's say, January 79. And the Calgary housing market was crazy. We would, we would open a parade of homes. Um, we would release, say, say, like, David, you'll know, like Oak Ridge Estates. We would, we would release 10 lots. And there was a house there. 2,100 square foot split level, three bedrooms, and we would release it at $169,000. And we'd sell, up, we'd sell them all. And the next week they went from 169 to 189. And then 190, we ended up over the year or two, the final price was like $279,000. But that's what Calgary was. It was an economic boom here. And then um, the storm clouds started to gather in 81. Mm -hmm. We had the introduction of the Federal National Energy Program um, and um, double-digit interest rates and also the end of the MERB program, multiple unit residential building tax shelters. So the housing industry was brought to its knees as well as the energy industry and all those spin-off industries. And really that recession lasted from 81 really until 95. It was a long recession. The night, like what we always found though was that no matter how long or how deep the recessions were, Calgary and Alberta always bounced back bigger and better. Unfortunately, this time we're not seeing that. <laughs> so yeah, you, uh are in the, excuse me, real estate industry, and uh, you spent, what, 10 years there? Yeah, I, w I was there for a decade. Um, GenStar was very badly hurt, the housing divisions, during that recession. During its peak, we probably employed 800 people. We were fully integrated. We had concrete companies, and we had electrical companies, and cabinet companies, and we were framers. Like, we pretty well did it all. And when the recession started, um, the layoffs started. And at the, I remember I left there like November 30th. And I had gone in and I saw the president of the company and I said to him, listen, 
I love what I do. You guys have treated me exceptionally well. And you have to understand, I was going to the management meetings, and we were losing a half a million dollars a month. And the head office at San Francisco said, guys, we, we, we employ 40,000 people around the world. We know there's a recession. But if you can't make any money, that's one thing. But you had best stop losing money yeah. because we're not going to keep you open. I left. I went in and saw the president. And I said, you know, I got a wife. Now I had a son. I got a mortgage. I got bills. If you promise me a year's severance, I'll stay. And he was a gentleman and said, you know, we're not going to make it. You've got this other job offer. Take it and go. The job offer was with a financial company, but the CFO there was the ex-CFO at Engineered Homes, and he had been laid off from there, and he kind of job hunted me. So um, anyway, I was there for a while, and they too were a casualty of the huge downturn in the banking industry in Canada where there were numerous Montreal Trust, Central Trust, Royal Trust, Crown Trust. So from there, um, I went to an old GenStar client, Shelter Corporation, and I worked there. And that was a really hands-on by ownership uh, company. And I learned a lot from those fellows there about how real estate works and whatnot. And one of the projects that I was given, we had... Um, a very large acre site on McLeod Trail. We had, they had poured the foundations to build multi-story office buildings. The recession hit. Um, the holes in the ground filled up with water. And I believe with those double-digit interest rates and land that was bought at the peak, it was costing them like 500000 a month in interest. So they said to me, go do something with this, <laughs> like stop the bleed. So instead of building high density, I ended up building a 60,000 square foot strip center, very poor use for the land, but at least it stopped the bleed. And the building, it was the easy part. Then you had to go find, find tenants. tenants. Yeah. And I kind of worked on the bigger lie theory. Like I told McDonald's that I had Burger King. I told Burger King that I had Wendy's, yeah. hoping that I'd get somebody. And we eventually, we leased it up, and we had a 2,100-square-foot space. Then in the back of my mind, I said, you know what? I'm going to see about getting Tim Hortons. I had a relationship with them over the years, just staying in touch, you know? What do you think about me going into the business? I built this center. I went to them. I leased the space, and I said, uh, if you give me... The franchise. I'll Over. give you the space. Alan, we must take a short, a short break. You know, we have to pause for a commercial break. Uh, to our listeners, you can check www.teamhorton.com and find teams near uh, the team near you. We'll meet you here on the other side of the commercials. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events 
to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. You are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I-Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back with my guest, Alan Myers, uh, Tim Horton, franchisee, and owner. So I have a question for you. you, you when we Before we went to commercial, you kind of segued into the franchise world. And why franchise? Uh, your father had an independent business, comes from the independent kind of ownership, and you decide, decide to go to a franchisee kind of model. Why? Okay. Briefly back in Fredericton. My dad was a big fish in a very, very small pond. And we were in a myriad of businesses. And Tim Hortons, when they first came to Fredericton and they opened their first store, um, they were doing land office business. And my dad said to me, get a piece of paper and a pencil and go up there and watch the cash register. Every time they make a sale, write it down. (laughs) <laughs> the, the very sophisticated market research back then. Yeah. So I did that, and we kind of figured out that there was a dollar to be made here. A couple of hundred yards up the street, we went and bought a piece of land. And we were going to open a competitive coffee and bake good shop. And quite by accident, the... One of the head fellows from Tim Hortons in Oakville, from Oakville, ran into us. And we got to talking. And he said to us, you don't want to do this. We will put you out of business. Do not compete with Tim Hortons. And, you know, we had said that to people many times over the years. (laughs) We had never had anyone say that to us. And was probably the biggest mistake that we made. It was not going in to compete with them, but we sold the piece of land. Because had we held it, it would be many times worth what we sold it for. But anyway, um, I asked that fellow for his business card, and I kept it. And when I came out to Calgary... There was no, Tim Hortons was not in Calgary yet. And the company was small enough back then 
that when I called the office, it was the president of Tim Hortons, the late Ronald, Ron Joyce, that answered the phone. And I got to talking to him. I'm in Calgary. I know you're from Fredericton. Can I do this here? And he said, we don't have any stores. We're about to do our first one on 36th Street Northeast. And that's by Ikea, David. If, yeah. And he said, the numbers don't make sense. Like Calgary numbers are way higher than what they are in Ontario to do things. Keep your eye on it. And why I was calling him was that I had a great site. Back then, there was a vacant piece of land beside now, like there was a Burger King there on the cloud and the keg. That piece of land was vacant. And I said, hey, that's a great site. It's on the go-in-the-work side. There's no competition. And that's what I was calling him about. And he, he had said, well, keep your eye on the one we're doing. And if we stay in business, call me back. <laughs> and that time, you're talking 1981, 82, the recession came. And I said, you know what? I best stay where I am and collect the paycheck. So what then happened? Like everything is a life lesson. And I saw the trauma that all those hundreds of people that I worked with that engineered homes were going through when they got laid off. During the boom, these people were making very significant money, particularly back in that time, the early 80s. You know, they had the houses and the cars and the boats and the house trailers. Um, they had to call their wives to come to the office to pick them up because they lost their company car. And not only did they lose all their toys and their house, but some of them even lost their marriage because the marriage wasn't strong enough to cope with going from the boom times and lots of money to now that you're laid off and you don't have a job. And people find it very, I learned this, my mother once told me, nobody ever likes going backwards. You get used to one quality of life, standard of living, you don't want to go backwards. So I said, you know what, I have to become the master of my own destiny. Okay. I don't want to be 50 or 60 years old. I, I can tell you the speech. Hi, Al. You have been an exceptional employee. You've done a great job here. And I really don't know where we'd be today without you. But there's always that but. but. And, you know, when you get, naturally, as you get older, you become more expensive in the company. Yeah. And also, the downside is your knowledge becomes old. And... I can't work as hard, you know, I, now I'm 64, as when I was in my 30s and 40s. So you become expendable. And I have seen that, particularly in this last recession. Um, you know, I go out golfing and I talk and it like, what do you do for a living? Like, I can't believe that these people are out here in the middle of the day working for somebody or first thing in the morning and they're golfing and they say, 
I've been laid off. And I've been laid off for one year, two years, three years. And I just didn't want that. I mean, I don't think there's a worse feeling than to be told that you're not needed anymore than the one that I had when I was job hunting, getting all those rejection letters. So that's why I decided I had to go into business for myself. I get it. But why franchisee and not independent? Oh, because um, I am not secretariat. I am the Budweiser plow horse. I never had an original idea in my life. Just tell me what you want me to do. And I'll do it. Point me in the direction where the goalposts are, and I will get there. So, Alan, my show is all about entrepreneurship, and I want to ask you a few questions uh, in regards to it. So, if today you had to mentor someone that wants to get into the, let's say, your industry, the food or hospitality industry, right? Would you recommend independent? Because we see it's almost a trend now to have independent coffee shops, independent restaurants, or will you recommend franchisee? Root. Uh, if if you are a creative person and you know the business that you want to get into, then fine, you can go the independent route. What I like about the franchise system is that they teach you. And there's a paint by number book for everything. And probably Besides all the systems, the biggest advantage is the advertising. Like our national advertising fund is multiples of hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's a huge fund. Mm -hmm. I could never advertise the way that they do. And as well, Tim Hortons is a Canadian icon. You walk any place. In Canada, you stop anybody on the street and ask them, do you know Tim Hortons? Where is the Tim Hortons? Everybody can tell you. But if I was Al's coffee shop, um, (laughs) they would probably say, sorry, um, I don't know where it is or I've never heard of it. So that's the benefit of being in, um, in a franchise. You know, they have, you know, they have people that are just focused on every aspect of the business, like packaging and new food items and how to build them and marketing. Um, I mean, look at, you know, Tim, Ron Joyce started the Tim Hortons Children's Foundation. And over the years, we've put tens of thousands of economically underprivileged children through these camps for an experience of a lifetime. Some of these children have never been on an airplane. They've never been to summer camp. And they come from horrible backgrounds. But the point that I'm saying is if I was an independent, how could I do something like this? And it's by participating in it, by, you know, we have camp day where we donate all the proceeds from our coffee sales. I think last year was, you know, in the order of like $10 million that we raised one day. Could never do that as an independent. Right. So those are the benefits of being part 
of this franchise system. And now you have three locations. Correct. Uh, all of them in South Calgary, but how does one manage three locations? Uh, and you mentioned earlier that you have about 100 staff. I have 110 staff between the three locations. Um, so how one can manage yeah, three locations? I, I was late learning that you really needed to develop people and that you had to stop micromanaging everything. Like, I was in charge of everything. Nothing got done in those stores without me first having input into it. Um, the, I, remember, I think my first vacation was five years after I started in the business because I never felt that I could leave it. Mm-hmm. So you develop your people. It gives you, you know, some freedom. And as I always told them, I said, you're going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Just don't do that one mistake that's going to put us out of business. And in the food business, the number one concern, risk, you never want to have a food safety incident. And so that is an ongoing 24-7 because that's, you know, we never close. Um, issue that we always have to be mindful of is food safety. Mm-hmm. So how do you keep 110 employees in three locations and working in shifts, right? Um, how do you keep uh, employees in uh, alignment with what you see as the goals or, or your vision for your stores? A lot of it is based on what you instill in your management people. Um, the food service industry is known for a very, very high turnover. And within Tim Hortons, probably even more so because we're so busy, the stress of the job and the complexity of the job. I know, for example, there is no other business where customers, not only have they come to expect this gold standard of service, they demand it. They will walk into a bank, there can be seven teller wickets, and if there's only one of them open, they'll stand there. Doesn't any other retail bit, they'll stand there. They will not stand at a Tim Hortons. So you have to instill this culture in your people. Um, It's very stressful. Um, it's very complex. I'm very fortunate. I like to think that my wife and I and my management people are doing something right. I have team members that have been with me up to 30 years. And Other than your wife, you mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, these people, it's like they could work anywhere, like particularly my management people. And... They have stayed there, and a lot of it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great relationship. Um, I know their first names. I walk into whichever restaurant I walk, whenever I walk into a restaurant, I make a point, I go over to each of them, hi, how are you? They might be making a coffee, serving a sandwich. Hi, how are you, what's doing? You know, you, I empathize with them, and... They work very, very hard, 
It's not a lucrative wage that they get. We're in the fast food business. Um, I would like to think that we treat them um, as good as, if not better, than, never mind another employee, but I always say, their parents, their spouses, whatever. So, um, Since we talked about employees, um, when I did my research, I found um, some of comments you made on different articles, and you're very, I would say, you're critiquing government for employment issues. And as you said, with the 110 employees and turnover and, and fast food industry, how tough is it for an entrepreneur to in today's world to find employees, to get employees, um, to make sure that he has, you know, a core stuff that helps him or her kind of advance their business? Because as you said earlier, we don't want to go backwards. We always want to go forward. Staffing has always been a critical issue in any business. To find people that are reliable, motivated, um, that want to do a good job is exceptionally difficult. You know, years ago, um, I think we probably go back to 20, let's say 2010, I had the opportunity to listen to the federal immigration minister at the time say Canada was sitting on a demographic time bomb, that the birth rate and the mortality rate were in sync, and there were not going to be enough people to fill all the vacant jobs going forward. That's kind of code for not enough people working to pay taxes to fund all the social programs that Canadians have come to demand and expect. Canadians and I think, in my opinion, they're not so open to immigration, okay? There's always this fear, they're going to take my job. And, you know, the economic times are continually changing. And, for example, like, I get it. The government prefers to have the highly educated, high-income immigrants because they're going to pay the most taxes. But once we bring in all these dentists and doctors and engineers and whatnot, tell me, who is going to do all the service work that they require? Mm -hmm. Who's going to paint the house, clean the house, you know, all those kind of things. And that's the, a huge problem here in this country today. Um, I look at Alberta that is supposedly in the depths of a horrendous recession. The government says that unemployment is 8.2% in Calgary. People can't find work. Please explain to me then why there's all these help wanted, now hiring signs on businesses in Calgary. And I understand, it may not be your dream job. I get that. Okay? Remember, when I came to Calgary unemployed, I was clerking in the stationery department at the <laughs> Hudson Bay Company. Okay? Did I see that as my life's work? Absolutely not. Before that, I was waiting tables. So, 
the point that I'm saying is that government, I believe one of their jobs is to create an environment for where business can flourish. I mean, how many times do we hear government say small business is the engine right. of economic growth? In the meantime, government does its best to erect all these hurdles, okay? <laughs> you know, so there's a real disconnect. And a lot of politicians are dis like, you know, I was at a town hall meeting, a city alderman a couple of weeks ago, and he said, the city is going to bring back a summer jobs program because to do something about youth unemployment. And I remember reading about those jobs. You could be a lifeguard for $25 an hour. Okay, that's great. But in the meantime, me, the small businessman, I have to compete with the city offering that wage that they're funding with my residential property taxes, my business property taxes, and all the other fees. And it's tough to compete with government when they have an endless supply of money. I see. Um, you know, we're going probably into election in Alberta, but do you see that government today in Alberta and in Canada is more... Uh, I would say interfering in small and medium-sized businesses, or is it has been the same over the years? No, government has never been more interventionist than what it is today. And you know, you look at it. I still recall President Obama in one of his speeches saying, "You don't own that business, or you didn't build that business. The public did." And that's the government, the way that they look at things. It's only private when it suits the government that it's private. Government pays lip service to how important business is. In my mind, every level of government looks to milk as much revenue as they can at a small business because it doesn't have a voice. Okay? And I'm not even sure if big business has a voice because Look what the government at both the federal and the provincial level has done to one of the major industries in Canada, the energy industry. Well, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see the election coming soon. Absolutely. We have two elections this year, federal and uh, yeah. provincial. Yeah. Um, let's go back to business yeah. and talk about, um, you know, we're getting close to the end of the show. We have uh, about less than four minutes. So... Your motivation 31 years ago was, I don't want to be laid off. I want to be, don't want to be the one walked out with a banker's box. Uh, I have a family that I want to feed. What is your motivation today? Three, prop, already three franchisees, and now you talk to me about your fourth that you have a dream. So what, how do you find your motivation today? What motivates you today? I can understand 31 years ago. What's today at 64 instead of golfing in Scottsdale? History, as they say can and does repeat itself. Pro approximately three years ago would have made my youngest son 28 years old. He is a journeyman electrician, was set to become a master electrician. Um, and all he wanted to do was work. He loved being an electrician. Whenever the boss needed a volunteer to work night shift 
weekends, statutory holidays, he could always count on my son putting his hand up because all he was interested in was making money. Yeah. And when I was in Phoenix three years ago, the phone rang and he would call his mom. My, both my boys have a wonderful relationship with their mother. They would speak every day, every second day. Only time I would hear from them is when there was problems. And he says, Dad, I got a phone call at home this morning. I got called into the office. And this Friday's my last day at work. I'm being laid off. And I said to him, well, think about it. What you want to do next, I'll be home in a week and we'll talk about it. And when I came home, he says, you know, we had always talked that maybe one day I would go into the business. So I guess now is that time. So he joined me three years ago. Um, It was a very difficult transition for both of us. (laughs) Um, But he has learned and... I, you know, these three restaurants, we have a significant capital investment. And also I have to keep the franchisor happy. So I have to make sure that he's ready to take over. I see. And do you think he's ready? Still be a little bit more time. (laughs) Is the father ever happy? Alan, I have one last question, and you have to shoot from the hip. If I gave you an opportunity to meet two people, dead or alive, who would you want to have lunch with? Oh, um, Al Capone has been my childhood hero, (laughs) and also um, would love to have somebody like um, a Ron Joyce, um, a Warren Buffett, I didn't expect Al Capone. I didn't expect the other two. So, Al, thank you. We reached the end of today's episode of Taking Care of Business. Thank you, Al Myers, Team Horton Franchisee, for being my guest this morning, sharing with us your journey from real estate to successful Team Horton, being a successful Team Horton Franchisee. Thank you all for tuning in. Your feedback is uh, vital and important for us. Please keep on emailing us your feedback and uh, also guest suggestions to dvwallach at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, like us on Facebook, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you again, Aaron, my dedicated engineer every Tuesday morning, Sasha, my assistant executive producer. Next week, uh, Tuesday, March 26, my guest will be Glenn Street. We will put a mascot on our show, and I'll meet you here at voiceamerica.com slash variety, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, your host, David Wallach. Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business. Please join David Wallach again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, make your week as great as you want it.